Thank you for downloading the Sturgeon Bay Community Church podcast. Join us each Sunday at 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. at the corner of Georgia Street and 12th Avenue in Sturgeon Bay. For more information about Community Church, be sure to check out our website at sbcommunitychurch.com. Now, sit back with a notebook and a great cup of coffee and experience this week's message. Sturgeon Bay Community Church, transforming community by loving God and others. But one of the neat things about our church is the number of people who are getting involved and serving and doing, uh, being volunteers and making things happen around here. And each week I'm trying to point out and recognize, just so all of us can celebrate with you and thank you, uh, the people who have been involved. So the buildings and grounds team at our church has been highly active of late. Num- number one, getting the, the gym remodel finished over there for the multi-purpose room, which I believe they're actually using today. Um, so people have been involved in that. People have been involved in helping outside. And then over at the Belmar house, the house that was donated to the church for us to flip and sell and pay for our new parking lots out here in the spring, a uh, large number of people have been involved in that. So I just wanted to recognize uh, a group of people who have been doing that. So Steve Nguyen, uh, Dave Jazeski, James Evers, Tana Evers, John Anderson, Darren Hessler, Mike Thompson, Paul Griswold, Phil Bryan, Fred Erickson, Glenn Hurlitz, Patty Tebon, who, by the way, Patty, holy cow, swinging, swinging the uh, sledgehammer out there to knock that shower. That's crazy. I'm glad I didn't have to do that. Somebody younger and stronger, right? Uh, Randy Brower, Andrew Reed, Phil Rockwell, who mudded the entire multipurpose room over there. He and Andrew did that by themselves. That's a lot of work. Oh, my gosh. Thank you. Um, uh, Andrew Dion, Aaron Given, and Jordan Pedler, and I'm sure we've missed a person or two, but thank you so much for the help that you've been providing. Um, it's neat for us as a church to, to know that some of these things can be done internally. Let me offer you a challenge, though. The Belmar House Project is kind of slowing down a little bit. Uh, we could use some more help over there on Saturdays, so if you're available on Saturdays to do some caulk and hakes, hang some sheetrock, uh, sweep, swing a sledgehammer, whatever it may be, uh, we still need to get some work done over there because in the spring we'd like that house to be able to sell and pay for the new parking lots up here at Sturgeon Bay Community Church so that, here's how it fits together, people with mobility challenges and families with young children will know that this church has seen them and is making it possible for our parking lot to get them in quickly and safely. So it's all interconnected. So if you want to help people get in without slipping in the ice, go help put some sheetrock up over at Belmar. See? All right, well, this morning, we're going to pick back up in the book of Mark. So if you have your Bibles with you, uh, it would be a great time to turn to the book of Mark. Otherwise, some of these things will be up on the screen behind you. As we began a few weeks ago, and I don't have a back screen, guys. As we began a few weeks ago, taking a look at the gospel of Mark, I told you that um, it's the shortest of the gospels. We have Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. I told you it's also important to know that Mark was the very first first gospel written. So Matthew, although super important, is not in chronological order. Mark was written first. Mark himself, the author, was was in a special position historically. He had been the disciple of Peter, but the way he met Peter is what's fascinating. He met Peter 
on the day when Jesus sent Peter and James or John into the city of Jerusalem to find the place where the Last Supper would be held, where Jesus and his disciples would celebrate the Passover. As, as Peter and the other apostle came into town, they followed a man back and he went to John Mark's house. So young teenager John Mark got to see the Last Supper with Jesus. John Mark was there when, when, when Judas, you know, sulked off and, and did what he did. He was there when Jesus came back after the resurrection and said, you know, why are you crying? I'm back. Wah! John Mark got to see that. John Mark got to be there when, when, when Jesus said, Thomas, put your, you put your finger in the holes of my hand, son. Put your, put your hand in my side. It's me. It's for real. John Mark got to be there when Peter was released from prison by the miracle, and he came and, and he rapped on the door, and the housekeeper was like, ah, and slammed the door on Peter, and he knock again, hey. John Mark got to see all of this. So his formative years, as he grew up, as he went from being a, a child to a man, he was spending his time with Peter. Peter, a father figure to him, and, and, and Peter's execution finally happened. John, uh, young John Mark, went out and, and began to minister on his own. Eventually, Mark became the bishop of Alexandria. That was huge in the ancient world. And so uh, Mark's love of scholarship and Mark's love of writing and, and of literature and of being clear and, and holding nothing back all comes through in his book. A few other things about Mark's book that's so important. Um, I told you that that er, 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 the earliest writings are usually the shortest, you know. And when when Mark wrote his gospel, he was the very first. And Matthew and John and Luke they came later, but they they were able to say, okay, excellent job, uh, uh, Mark. Here's how we remember it too. And there's a few more details. And and as we're writing to a different crowd, like Dr. Luke writing, you know, he he expanded it out there uh, so that so that Theophilus would have even more to read and more details. The beauty of Mark, though, is that it is abrupt and direct, and it's about as subtle as a lion or a lightning bolt. But Mark is a brilliant writer, and Mark introduces some things to culture and literature that nobody else had done before. Um, and one of them is this sandwich technique that he, I'll put some of these characteristics up there you can look at. One of the things he did was this thing called a sandwich technique and he'll be right, there'll be a story going on and then all of a sudden in the middle of a story with no special reason, it seems, uh, he jumps up and tells another story right in the middle of it. Then boom, he comes back to the other story and this sandwiching, this ABA technique, uh, Mark brings into ancient Eastern literature. And it's his way of saying, this story illuminates the other part of the story. It's really pretty. But the other thing that Mark brought uh, is something uh, special. It, it's a type of literary device that we're going to see. And it's known as a periscopic pericope. Woo! You all learned a big word. Periscopic pericope basically means you're going to step up out of the situation. You know, like the periscope that comes up out of the submarine, right? You know, you with me? Okay, so, so the periscope comes up and you see with clarity everything outside of the environment that you're locked in. And a pericope is a story that helps you explain the situation or bring clarity to it. So Mark teaches and writes in this periscopic pericope, and it's really neat to watch happen. So the central theme of Mark, who remembers the central theme of Mark? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. Mark really, really slams this home all the way through the book. So for Sturgeon Bay Community Church and during our study in Mark, I want to make sure everybody hears me say this. Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, 
the Son of God. That's the theme of Mark. So if, there's, if you're ever wondering, I wonder what this story is about. It's that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. I wonder why Mark is telling the story of John the Baptist, because Jesus is the Messiah, is the Son of God. I wonder what this parable has to do. It's that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. So if you're ever wondering, that's what it's about. Mark is just clear on this subject, and we should be too as we do. Right smack in the middle of Mark, in the middle of Mark is our core verse, and that's that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve others and to give his life as a ransom for many. And Mark 10, this verse is right in the middle of the book, and it's just clarifying what Jesus is there for. He's the Messiah, the Son of God. He came to serve mankind and to give his life as a ransom for many, so that you and I have the opportunity to be at peace with God. Amen? That's the exciting book of Mark. So we've, uh, we've explored a few of the different topics here. We, we talked about the, uh, the importance of, of Jesus, what it means to be Messiah, the Christ. Uh, we've looked at uh, the prophecies that are going to be fulfilled. Mark actually opens his book up with this salvo, and he just hammers into the, the, the historic significance and the prophetic fulfillment of who Jesus is as the Christ. <coughs> Excuse me. He pulls from, uh, from, from Malachi and from Isaiah and really drives it home. He pulls from Joel. And then he goes and, and, and he tells the story of Jesus' baptism and how John the Baptist was the forerunner. And all these things are coming together just to paint a crystal clear, unmistakable picture that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And then we looked at Hebrew slavery and some of the, the, uh, the pictures that, that were painted there as John the Baptist says, I'm not even worthy to, to undo his sandals. And it gave imagery to the Hebrew people there of, of, that really came back to their mind when Jesus would bend down and wash the feet of his disciples because the Son of Man came to serve, not to be served, and to give his life as a ransom for many. And we looked at the Spirit of God coming and descending and settling on, on Jesus as the dove, which was implicit and explicit and unmistakable as the sign that the Spirit, the Ruah, the Numa, the breath of God was settling on mankind and the Spirit had come to stay. Excuse me. So this week, as we move on, we're going to be in Mark chapter 1, and we're going to move to verses 12 through 28. Well, we're going to try. Anyway, we're going to be in verses 14 to 15 in particular. And we're going to be taking a look today um, at the good news. Jesus comes, uh, he's come out of the wilderness now, he's gone through that time of testing and trial, and now the good news, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Several years ago, or maybe it was months ago, I don't remember, I was watching the Olympics. Anybody watch the Olympics? You get kind of all caught up in it, you know, and the, the gymnastics team and the, the archers and the people who ski and shoot, whatever that's called, but it looks like a blast. And then there's the swimmers and all that stuff. Well, something was happening in one of our... Um, one of our swimmers was about to do something truly remarkable, and she was going to, I think, be the first black American female swimmer to have, to have meddled in, in this particular thing, and it was really exciting, and I think all of America was like, yeah, man, about time. This is awesome. And, and the lady who was doing the announcing, she said, um, history is at hand. And it was interesting because here comes this secular, not Christian uh, announcer later, and she says, is at hand. What's it mean when you say something's at hand? What, what, what does that mean? It's close. It's right there. You can reach out and touch it, grab it. It's right there. Jesus is coming saying, the kingdom of heaven is right there. 
It's imminent. You can reach out and touch it. Here's the moment you've been waiting for is that swimmer was ready to go into the pool. We were like, yes, it's here. She's got this. A moment that should have come a long time ago, but it's here and we get to go, yeah. You feel the anticipation? This is how the people of Judea were feeling. The Messiah, the Christ is here. The kingdom we've been waiting for is at hand. Now, unfortunately for so many of them, they were expecting a kingdom of swords and white horses and chariots and Caesar overthrown and the Jews ruling the world and, and the temples, the one everybody in the world would come to. And then it would be an earthly kingdom. And this is what, for some reason, they were, they were looking forward to. And they were going to be disappointed. But those who had eyes to see and ears to hear would recognize that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, Son of God, and that He came to take away the sins of the world and to give His life as a ransom for many. That's what's going to happen in Mark. So uh, Mark chapter 1, um, in particular, verses 14 and 15, it says, Later on, after John was arrested, Jesus went into Galilee where He preached God's good news. The time promised by God has come at last, he announced. The kingdom of God is near. Repent of your sins and believe the good news. Jesus would open up his earthly ministry uh, and really begin in earnest to serve and to do and to, to teach people right about the time John the Baptist is arrested by Herod and thrown into prison. So what was Jesus doing from the time he was baptized to when John goes into prison? Well, there's, there's, a, there's a couple of months in that time. John's been doing his ministry in the desert for quite some time. But Herod arrests John and throws him into prison because you just can't have some guy out there in the wilderness saying that a new king is coming, a Messiah is coming. And if you're Herod, you definitely can't have that because, you know, he's the king. So I don't want somebody else saying, hey, the new president is coming, the new president is coming because the president's going to be like, I just got elected. What are you talking about? I mean, the new president's going to... You see where the tension happens? So the kingdom of heaven is at hand, the message of Jesus and what John had to say. John ends up in prison. Jesus begins to teach. He begins to do miracles. He begins to demonstrate remarkable things. And people begin to watch him and to follow him and to seek him out, particularly in Capernaum and around Galilee. He becomes quite the famous figure because Jesus is doing remarkable things. You know why he's doing remarkable things? Why do you think Mark tells us that? Because Jesus is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. So if you were just wondering, Mark is going to continue to drive this point home uh, with, with, with no abandon. Jesus went into Galilee where he preached the good news. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Now, what is the kingdom of God? What is this good news? The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. What is a kingdom? How many of you, um, would, if you think of a king... Or, or a queen, uh, or, or, or an emperor, uh, you think of the, the nation or the, the thing that they rule. Can you get that in your mind? Are you, are you picturing that? Here's the definition of a kingdom. It's the rule and the realm of a sovereign. Tracking? Pretty simple. It's not complicated. It's the rule and the realm of the sovereign. In other words, the way things are done in the kingdom, it's the king's way. Got it? The kingdom is the king's way of doing things. It's the rule in the realm of a sovereign. If you go to Saudi Arabia today, are they doing things our way? No, they're doing things their way. You know why? The house of Saud determines how things get done because it's his kingdom. 
right? If you, if you go uh, back in history and you go back to China and you're in the Ming Dynasty and you're, you're cruising around in the Ming Dynasty and saying hey to everybody, you know, and when, when you're there, how are things getting done? The emperor's way. It looks like the emperor's way of doing things because it's his kingdom. Are we, we're on the same page, right? The kingdom of heaven is like... Jesus began so many of his parables in Matthew chapter 13 in particular with the kingdom of heaven is light because he wanted people to understand here's God's way of doing things. The king's rule and reign looks like this. This is the kingdom. So that's how Jesus is going to open a great many of his parables. So um, as a project, let me ask you, if you have your Bible with you this morning or you're using your device, remember the password is community, capital C, community, if you're getting on the Wi-Fi, um, do it quick before the other people do it. There's no bandwidth. Matthew chapter 13. Go with me to Matthew chapter 13, and we're going to take a look at Jesus talking about the kingdom of, of heaven. <laughs> There's, okay, it's down there somewhere. There it is. Matthew chapter 13, verse 11. Uh, his disciples came to him and asked, Why do you use parables when you talk to people? <laughs> so Jesus said, uh, You are permitted to understand the secrets of the kingdom of heaven, but others are not. Jesus is going to say, The king's way of doing things you get to understand, but others don't. Uh, moving on down here, we're going to be in verse 19. Uh, he says, uh, who, those of you who hear the message of the kingdom, so he's going to say the message of God's way of doing things. Verse 24, the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who planted good seed in his field. As you move over to verse 31, here's another illustration that the Messiah used. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed planted in a field. It's the smallest of all the seeds, but it becomes the largest of the garden plants and grows into a tree and birds come and make nests in its branches. Verse 33, the kingdom of heaven is like the yeast a woman used in baking her bread. Even though she only put a little yeast in three measures of flour, it permitted every part of the dough to rise. If we move to 37, the Son of Man is the farmer who plants the seed in the field. The field is the world, and the good seed represents the people of the kingdom. As you move over to verse 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure that a man discovers hidden in a field. In his excitement, he hid it again and sold everything he owned to get enough money to go and to buy the field for himself. Verse 45, 45, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant on the lookout for choice pearls. When he discovered a pearl of great value, he sold everything he owned and he went and bought it. Verse 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a fishing net. Over and over, Jesus is going to use this illustration, the kingdom of heaven is like, the kingdom of heaven is like, and what he's doing is he's painting pictures for the people who are following, people who can't read and write, most of them, okay? He can't give them a handout. He's painting a picture they can remember, they can think about and ponder on and open it up and let it begin to expand in meaning and come clear to them. And he's saying, God's way of doing things, the rule and the reign of the sovereign is like this. So if you think about that mustard seed, I wonder if anybody else can relate to the kingdom of heaven is like you. You seem so small. You seem so insignificant. I'm one person. What can I really do? 
I mean, look at me. I don't have all those talents. And I, can't, I can't sing like that person. I, I'm not a great craftsman like that person. I'm not like ultimate homeschool mom of the year like that person. And, and look at them. I'm not, I'm not as smart as that person. I can't speak as well as that person. I'm, I'm not as wonderful to follow. They're such a great leader. Who am I? I'm this tiny person. But the kingdom of heaven is like this. You, the smallest of the seeds, when you use your gifts and your talents that God has entrusted with you, when you be you, when you blossom where you're planted, you become the tree that's so strong that others look to you and say, that's what I want to be like someday. Because the smallest becomes the greatest. That's what the kingdom of heaven is like. You hearing Jesus? You hearing what he's saying? You know why Jesus is such a great speaker? Because Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And he came not to be served, but to serve you and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's Jesus. And Mark is saying, that's who Jesus is. Get on board. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is like a woman who's, who's, who's baking a, a, a thing of bread, and she's got all the flour. She puts just a little yeast in it, and the little yeast permeates and causes all of it to swell and to become that wonderful, fluffy bread that we all enjoy so much everywhere but at Passover, right? Or the Lord's Supper. That, that bread do just a little bit of yeast. What's the message there? It's that the least of us, the least of us, the least of us have impact to all of us. Your involvement, your gifts of your time and talent and treasure given towards kingdom value have impact on everyone. You matter. You're special. You are important to the kingdom. That's God's way of doing things. Pretty neat, huh? This is what Jesus is teaching in his parable. So let's take a look a little bit more about what it means to the people of Mark's day when they hear the kingdom of heaven is at hand. <clears throat> the first thing that occurs to the people of Mark's day uh, when they hear the kingdom of heaven is at hand is the fulfillment of numerous prophecies that the people were hearing from the Torah. Now, what's the Torah? Somebody say it loud and proud. What is the Torah? Okay, okay, there you go, there you go. Okay, the Torah is the first part, the, kind of what we would think of today as the Old Testament, the Pentateuch, the, the, uh, I almost said Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Oh, my gosh, can't have stupid, can you? Uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the, the, the Pentateuch, the five books of Moses, the Psalms, the Proverbs, and the, and the prophets. This makes up the Torah, the first part, or the Hebrew Bible. So Jesus is fulfilling numerous prophecies about the kingdom that would come, uh, from the Torah. So the people who are reading Mark's gospel, hearing John Mark's uh, uh, message, the good news of Jesus Christ being the Messiah, the Son of God, he is proclaiming loudly that the prophecies of the Torah are being fulfilled in Jesus. And so this is what they're hearing when he says the kingdom is at hand. People are going, oh, you mean the fulfillment of all those prophecies we're looking at? The kingdom of heaven is at hand. The Spirit would come again and stay. This is what the people of the Old Testament were hearing, is that the Spirit of God would come and He would stay. That's the beginning of the kingdom. Now, I want you to think back to Gideon. Remember Gideon? Gideon, you know, he's, he's out there, really brave, mighty warrior. He's hiding in a wine press, threshing wheat so nobody will see him. But he's such a brilliant lad that he's doing it in the middle of a valley where anybody could see it. And the angel of the Lord comes to him and he goes, 
Hail, mighty warrior. Hebrew sarcasm. Gorgeous. The only place in the Bible. And, and, and Gideon's, ah! And he says, the Lord uh, says you're going to be the mighty warrior. This one? But the Spirit of the Lord comes on Gideon, and Gideon does remarkable things because the Spirit of the Lord resided on him. Deborah, great prophet, speaking and bringing wisdom uh, to Israel from under the oak tree where people would come to seek wisdom from her. And the Spirit of the Lord came upon Deborah and empowered her to do what she did, and she led the nation with her words of wisdom. And, 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 and you think of Samson. Samson was strong and powerful as long as the Spirit of the Lord dwelt on him and, 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 and served and was able to do through him. But when the Spirit of the Lord was taken from Samson, what happens? Oh my gosh, they cut his hair off, he loses his strength, they gouge his eyes out, he's whipped, he's chained. You know, not where you want to be, but Samson surrenders himself to the Lord. God, I have messed up. I surrender myself back to you, Lord. Uh, don't let this be the legacy that I leave. Let's, let's, go out in a, let's go out in a way that shows these Philistines who's God. You see, but the Spirit of the Lord, hear me, hear me now, in the kingdom resides in His people. It means that each one of you who have surrendered heart and life to Jesus Christ, who have confessed with your mouth and believed in your heart that He is Lord, those of you who have called upon the name of the Lord and been saved, those of you who have taken that step to profess boldly and publicly, I'm a follower of Jesus, and followed Him in believer's baptism, the Spirit has come and dwelled in you. You, you have God dwelling in you. You can hear the voice of His conscience. You can feel the empowerment of those gifts of the Spirit as you edify and as you serve in the life of the church. And like the yeast and like the mustard seed, the Spirit has empowered you to have tremendous impact beyond yourself. The Spirit of God is upon us and stays because we live in the kingdom. The kingdom which was at hand is among you. We get to live in that. The kingdom also... Uh, to, the, to the readers of Mark and to the readers today, we can understand something really, really important. Satan has been defeated. The adversary is defeated. And his little punk demons, they have no power to dominate you. You have the power over them because the Holy Spirit resides in you. So when Satan and his little punk demons come to you to say, you're not good enough. I mean, look at you. You've got this addiction. This addiction keeps you from being good enough. Oh, look at you. You've got this thing in your life, this pet sin you think nobody knows about. You're no good. You're no good. You're a failure. Oh, how could you be of any help to anybody? I mean, you're not that smart. You don't sing good. You're not real pretty to look at. You're not funny. You're not creative. You're not talented. And these voices of this fool continues to talk to you. You know what you have the power to be able to do? Because of Jesus Christ, who's the Messiah, the Son of God, and you as a child of His kingdom, because the Holy Spirit lives in you, you get to say, fool, get away from me. You have no power here. I've overcome you. You lose. There's no bullets in your gun pointed at somebody else. There's no edge on your sword. Swing it somewhere else. You're defeated. I'm a child of God. You don't get to hold me down. I am more than a conqueror over you, fool. This is the opportunity you have as the child of Jesus Christ in the kingdom of God. How cool is that? So when the voice in your ear tries to hold you back, when that thing is trying to suppress you or tell you that you don't matter, no, child of the kingdom, step up, recognize who you are, and enjoy that. Now listen, 
The new covenant promised in Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34, is a part of the kingdom. Now, you're probably not that person who just has Jeremiah 31, 31 to 34 uh, memorized, and that's okay. We're going to put it up on the screen, and we're going to take a look at this. But when, when Mark said, what, when Mark brings to mind what Jesus promised, the kingdom of heaven is at hand, everybody in his day immediately had their thoughts go straight to Jeremiah 31's prophecy. The new covenant, the new kingdom, when it comes, this is what it's going to look like. So here's what it looks like. The day is coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the people of Israel and Judah. This covenant will not be like the one I made with their ancestors when I took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. They broke that covenant, though I loved them as a husband loves his wife, says the Lord. But, there it is, this is the good news of the covenant that I will make with the people of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my instructions deep within them, and I will write them on their hearts. I will be their God, and they will be my people. And they will not need to teach their neighbors, nor will they need to teach their relatives, saying, You should know the Lord, for everyone from the least to the greatest will know me already, says the Lord, and I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. They shall know me, and I will be their God. That's the promise. Um, from um, the, the, the law is going to be written on their heart. They will be my children. That is a fascinating prophecy. It means that God is going to call, and people are going to answer. It means that, that human beings are going to be able to be in a relationship with God, and rather than have to turn to the Torah and read the law and make sure they, they follow each and every word, every jot and tittle, as the Scripture says, they're, they're going to know the law of God because the Holy Spirit is going to dwell in their heart, and He's going to woo, and He's going to call, and He's going to utter, and He's going to convict, and He's going to empower, and He's going to draw, and you will know your God just as he knows you. What a beautiful picture. That law written on their heart also means um, <clears throat> that the people are going to be forgiven of their wickedness, and God will not remember. They're saying God will forgive them. In other words, it doesn't take animal sacrifices and legalism to please God. It takes the surrender of heart and life and will, earnestly seeking to follow him with all your heart, all your soul, and all your mind. This is what God asks. The Lord has shown you, O oh man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you? Remember this verse? What does the Lord require of you? But to love justice, to seek mercy, and to walk humbly before your God. This is what the Christian embodies we fill our minds with those things that are true and noble and right and pure and lovely and admirable and excellent and praiseworthy. The behavior that we start to exude with the people who have God's law written on our heart is full of peace and patience and kindness and gentleness and long-suffering and understanding. These are the characteristics of the people of God. Written on our heart is the law of God. And you know what? People get to look at us, and they get to see it lived out, and they don't need to go read a book somewhere to tell them what godliness is, because they see it in God's people. What a beautiful promise. Friends, that's the kingdom. That's the kingdom. It's, God, it's the rule and the reign of the king. And when it's being lived out in your life, people are drawn to it. And just like in the second chapter of Acts, they're spoken of well by all the people around them. And God adds to their number daily those who are being saved. There's a part of this, though, that's really important. 
important. And I want to draw your attention to Romans chapter 8, to a passage here in Romans chapter 8. Uh, it's going to read like this. It's on the screen behind me. So now, there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to Him, the power of the life-giving Spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what no law could do. He sent His own Son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body... God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving His Son as a sacrifice for our sins. Sacrifice for our sins. Which means, hear me, the law of the Torah is no longer your way to God. Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. And He came to serve man, not to be served, and to give His life as an atonement for many. Which means, friends, the law is never going to be good enough to make you holy with God. You know why that's important? <clears throat> the reason that's important is this. You can't be good enough to impress God. Let me take that burden off your shoulders. It isn't up to you. Okay, You can't be so good that you impress the Creator of the universe and He says, you know... I'll let you in. You did it really well. You mean I was perfect? Perfect people? Got it? Jane? Perfect? No? You sure? If God lets one sinning, corrupt thing into heaven, is it perfect anymore? It's that glass of water with just one little aid in it. You want to drink it? No. No, it's just, it's just got the, the littlest bit of arsenic and it probably won't hurt you much at all. What? Why would God contaminate heaven? You see, in Jesus we're made perfect. We're atoned through Jesus, which means you can't earn your way into heaven. You can't merit your way into salvation. It's the gift of God for all who will accept it. Therefore, the people of Jesus' day who were under the heel and the thumb of the Pharisees and the Sadducees who gave them hundreds and hundreds of laws to follow. They were oppressed under that law, and the law condemned them. You couldn't be good enough. All you could do is continually make sacrifices and seek atonement. But Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to give His life for many. How beautiful. Now, history lesson, because it matters, okay? <laughs> There's the Torah, okay? And the Torah is the Old, Old Testament. There we go. Yep, the, the Pentateuch and the, 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 the laws, the prophets. This is the Torah. But added to the Torah in Jesus' day was this thing called the Mishnah. Say Mishnah. <clears throat> now you speak Hebrew. Uh, now say Torah. Okay? So you take the Torah and you add to it the Mishnah. So let me do an imperfect illustration. Here's the Torah. It's about yay wide, okay, written on scrolls, pretty neato. Here's the Torah. And then now we're going to add the Mishnah to it, okay? The Mishnah is going to have all these extra laws of man. They weren't God's laws. These were the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the priests adding all these extras. Imagine thousands and thousands of amendments to the Constitution of the United States. How could you ever keep them all? How could you ever know them all? It's impossible. The Mishnah was there to oppress people. The Mishnah also had all kinds of stories that were added, extra, extra books that weren't necessarily for the Torah, extra writings, extra essays. 
And if you're a really good Hebrew, you'd read all the Mishnah all the time, and you'd always be studying it. We'll talk about that, about the Capernaum synagogue in the weeks to come, which is pretty interesting, to be honest with you. So the people of Jesus' day, they've got the laws of the Torah and then hundreds of laws of the Mishnah. And here's how silly some of them were. The Mishnah laws would tell you how many feet you could walk in a day. Right? So it, just for hyperbole's sake, let's say that, that Andrew were making rules for you, and I say, if you're going to be a good Christian, Andrew, you may walk 25 steps on Sunday, but not 26. And if you walk 26, you owe one bull and two turtle doves and a partridge and a pear tree at the, at the, at the temple, and it'll cost you $10,000. Fair? Okay, this is the new law for Andrew. And so Andrew is just doing his thing, and he's being real careful about how he takes his steps. Uh, and he slips, and he takes one extra step. Up, oh, sinner, going to hell. How can you possibly live under this law? Here's how many bites you may chew when you eat your food. You may chew 17 times, but not 18, or you're sinning against God, and you shall go to hell. How absurd. But this is what the Jews had done. They had created this Mishnah. Now, are, we, are you in the mindset of what it's like? to live under that kind of oppression and legalism. I wonder how many of you, don't raise hands because I don't want to call people, how many of you have grown up in a legalistic view of Christianity? How many of us have, have, have grown up thinking that if, if you're truly the people of God, you'll only dress this way, you'll only listen to this kind of music, you'll only read from this translation of the Bible, and you'll only go to this kind of church, and you will never, ever skip Sunday on vacation. And by golly, if you go on vacation, you better find a church in the area and be there, and you better be there early and stay late. You better give exactly 10%. And, you, and the legals and the laws and the laws and the laws and the laws have been packed upon you. That oppression is just a taste of what it was like in Jesus' day. But Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, who came to take away the sin of the world and to put His kingdom in place. And the kingdom of heaven has no place for that kind of legalism. Jesus referred to the people, those legalists, He said, you're like whitewashed sepulchers. You're like a coffin that's really pretty to look at. But what happens if you open it? What's it full of? Corruption and decay and death and, and, and repulsion. And so what was, what was good has become contaminated. Jesus said, that's what you are. You're the contamination on the inside. You look great on the outside, but your hearts are dark and wicked. The kingdom of heaven, though, is one where the Spirit of God resides in your heart. So, friend, regardless of what the outside looks like, it's constantly being drawn closer and made more and more like Jesus Christ because what's on the inside is beautiful. It's Jesus. It's God's Holy Spirit, the breath, the pneuma, the ruah, the filling of the Holy Spirit inside of His child. You, you are a beautiful thing. You are God's child, the firstborn among many brethren, the ones that He's called and he's calling to be more and more and more like himself. And the law can't save you. And legalism can't save you. And the biggest, baddest, kingest, jamesest Bible you can carry low upon thee and beat upon thy neighbor about the head. This will not save you because it's legalism, God's word. Jesus is what saves. The Bible teaches us about Jesus and in its infallible words. The message of the gospel and truth is understood, and the Holy Spirit is who indwells us is, is empowered, and we empower, and we become what He uses. 
so that we're his hands and his feet to come bearing the good news of Jesus Christ. And, and the good news is sometimes the good news of Jesus Christ is in the English language, and sometimes it's in the Portuguese language, sometimes it's in the Russian language. And, and the King James is a cool Bible, but it's not the only Bible that saves. And if you're a slave to that kind of legalism, what is it holding you back from and what is it earning you? And if you think that somehow uh, this, this way of behaving and only doing this and only listening to this is somehow going to save you, you're depending on human effort. You're depending on a Mishnah. Now, obviously, my illustrations this morning are limited in scope, and I don't want you to think I'm trashing the King James because I've got several of them and I like them. But I want us to be careful that we don't become judgmental, that we don't become superioristic in the way that we think of ourselves, and we look down on other people or other Christians because they're not as good as us. That's legalism, and legalism won't save you. It doesn't save anybody. Jesus does the saving. Because he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Now, if you're a scholar out there and you're one of those people who just loves or you're out there on the internet listening right now and, and you like to exist in the blogosphere, you know, bless your heart. Uh, I do have a couple of slides here for you. So if you want to go on the website and look through the slides, there you go. Uh, and there you go. And there you go. And there you go. Love you. Um, have fun looking. Now, the kingdom of heaven is also beginning with something really specific and beautiful. The kingdom of heaven is at hand, right? God's way of doing things is at hand. But had the Holy Spirit come yet into everybody's life to indwell them who follow Jesus? Had that moment come yet? Ooh, not yet. It starts with the resurrection, now, the pivotal moment in Christianity is the resurrection from the dead, which validates and produces the first fruit, which will be followed by a vast harvest or the population of the kingdom. The kingdom of heaven is inaugurated and really begins. It's at hand, and you got it. That, that young lady comes out of the water, the swimmer who wanted it, she's excited, and the, the metal goes around her neck, and now it's happened. It was at hand. Now it's happened. You know when the kingdom of heaven happens? The resurrection, friends. Hey, Every single religion around the world prior to Jesus and many of the false ones that are kicking around today, they all have their, their prophet. They all have their central figure, and all those central figure is dead. All right? They're in a grave somewhere. They're rotten. All right? their, their ashes are there. Their stories are around, but they're dead. Jesus died on a cross, but he was resurrected from a grave, and that's when the kingdom begins. At Pentecost, the Holy Spirit comes, and He descends, and He and He fills His church, and the kingdom of heaven is underway. That's exciting. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, surrendering your heart and your soul to Him, when you believe and when you confess, and He comes into your heart, and the old becomes new, and, and the Spirit begins to move in you with peace and patience and gentleness and long-suffering kindness and understanding, when those moments start to happen, the kingdom is being lived out through you. God's way of doing things is being seen in you. You're the Bible people begin to read. It really happens because of the empty grave. Now, we, we wear little crosses around our neck. We get little tattoos of them, put them on our car, and that's all fine. The cross is great. Nothing to be ashamed of. Important. We're supposed important. We are supposed to take up our cross and follow him. But the symbol of Jesus Christ, really, of Christianity, would much better be an open grave. But I don't know how you make a little thing around your neck or a cool tattoo. And what's that? That's 
it's an open grave. Oh, it just looks like two circles. But, oh, well, just use your imagination. So the, the open grave is really what matters because if Jesus was still in the grave, would his gospel be true? Because, see, Mark has something he wants you to understand, and he's going to talk about that open grave later. You know what Mark wants you to understand? Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he's alive. And he's not in a grave because he defeated the grave, and the kingdom is here. The kingdom also, uh, to, the, to the people of that day, uh, when Mark was writing his gospel, would, would speak to the fact that God's anointed son of David had arrived to rule in his kingdom. We're going to see that in Matthew 2 and in Luke 2. Uh, the time has come. The kingdom has begun. The king is here. This one who would sit on the throne of David, who would be born in Bethlehem under the star, who would sit on the throne that God had established for his people, is here. And people were excited This is Mark's message. And so when Jesus of Nazareth began to preach the message, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Those were the things that the people of his day were hearing. The law is over. We are freed from the law. The grave is going to be empty. God is going to defeat death. Uh, The anointed son of David is going to come. He's going to be sitting on the throne. The spirit will come and indwell us. Satan will be made powerless and his demons powerless against us. There's no bullets in his gun, no edge on his sword. The new covenant has begun. And in that new covenant, God will know us and we will know him and people will see God in us. And there's not going to be a need for God to have to save us through the law. We don't understand God through law. We understand Him through our heart and the Spirit indwelling in us. And that is a beautiful picture. And that kingdom is at hand. This is the message that Jesus was teaching. So Jesus of Nazareth, who's the Messiah, the Son of God, is delivering this message to the people of His day. And people followed Him by the hundreds. Hundreds. Because He is the Messiah. And they were excited he was here. Now, let's be honest. Jesus was a great speaker. And in his culture, great speakers had lots of crowds that would follow him. Jesus was a great teacher. And in their culture, it was very common for people to follow teachers around and absorb their teaching and want to to learn from and become a follower of that teacher. So there were some who were following Jesus because he was a good teacher. There were some who were following because he was a compelling uh, speaker. But there were others who were following him. Hey, at least 12 were following Jesus Christ because they recognized he was the Messiah. He's the Son of God. He's the Messiah. He's the Christ. How about you? As we look at Mark and we hear that Jesus of Nazareth said, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Where's the kingdom of heaven in your life? Are you, are you living in such a way that people would see you and say, clearly that person who is full of truth and love and grace and peace and patience and gentleness and long-suffering and understanding, that surely that person who's using the gifts and the talents and the treasures that they have to invest in something that is permanent and forever. Surely, when people look at you, they see your sense of forgiveness and humility and grace. You're wanting to serve other people and do for others. The intense honesty and the work ethic that's just you, that people look at that and they realize, wow, the law of God is written on their hearts. That must be what it's like to be a follower of Jesus. Is that you? As our worship team is going to come forward now, here's what I want us to do.
And look, we're friends. Let's, let's just be honest in this room, okay? You're not perfect, but you're redeemed. You're not flawless, but you're loved. You're not, you're not good at everything, okay? But like a mustard seed and like that yeast, the kingdom of heaven in you is that God is going to take the least and he's going to do remarkable things with you. Maybe you came in here today and you got something you're hanging on to that makes you unfit or unwilling to serve in that kingdom, in the king's court. I'm, I'm betting, okay, because the statistics tell me so, that a lot of you, you're involved in pornography. You're putting stuff in your head that simply does not jive with God's way of doing things. Statistics tell me that some of you in this room, you're addicted to some substances. Hey, you don't need those pills anymore, but you're taking them. That bottle, it's going to destroy you. What are you doing? That affair, you're destroying what God intended for your marriage. That dishonesty that you're working with right now on your tax return, God can't honor that. You'd be ashamed if it was exposed or, or penalized. You know that grudge you're hanging on to? You just, you got to let it go. A grudge is a penalty you give yourself. <laughs> you know that? You don't hurt the other person when you hold a grudge. You just hurt you. That forgiveness that you need to ask for, that forgiveness you need to give, Friends, we children of the kingdom are guilty of sin too. But like a mustard seed and like that yeast, when you can surrender to Jesus Christ and give yourself to him, he can do big things with you. So this morning, let me ask you to stand. Would you do that? And, and as you stand, our, our elders and their wives are going to come forward and just kind of be right over here. We're going to do two things. I want, to, I want to ask you to all do something, and some of you, maybe it's time to take a step. Question I want us to ponder. What is unkingdom-like in you right now? What behavior, what thing, might it be time for you to say, I need to release this. I need to let it go. I, I need to move past this. I need to let the Holy Spirit reign here and do some things with kingdom value rather than with legal value. Maybe some of you in here today are you're trying really hard to impress God by living really good in hopes that maybe God will look past something else. Friend, God forgives. He puts your sin as far away as the east is from the west. So let me ask you now to close your eyes, to bow your heads. I just want everybody in this room to get alone with God for a moment. Nobody's looking at you. Nobody's peeking because that'd be a big cheater. I just want you to get alone with God for a minute. God, am I living in such a way that brings you glory? Am I living like I believe I'm a child of the kingdom, that you are the Messiah? Son of God. God, in this time, would you begin to show us maybe some areas where we need to be forgiven?
where we need to ask forgiveness, where we need to drop some things and move on. God, would you show us during this time where the Holy Spirit and the values of the kingdom of heaven need to rule and reign in our hearts? And friends, I know in a room this size, there are some of you who came in here today and you've been thinking about this Christianity thing for a while. You've been politely attending and listening and letting, letting the words roll off. But there's a time when that law that's written on your heart needs to begin to rule and you need to surrender your heart and your life to Jesus to confess with your mouth that he is God and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead and in front of a crowd of witnesses to say, I identify with Jesus Christ and become a part of the family of Jesus. If that's a decision you're ready to make today, can I encourage you to, as nobody's looking because eyes are closed and heads are bowed, would you make your way to the front just to one of these elders and their wives and just say, I want to I follow Jesus today. Or maybe I need to surrender something. Would you pray with me? Would you pray for me? I need to move past this thing that's holding me back. And I know I'm a child of the king, but I just, I got to let it go. See, Jesus of Nazareth is the Messiah, the Son of God, and he loves you, and he gave his life for you. As the music plays, as they sing, just do some business with God, or maybe come pray with some of these people who love you. I believe in the sun. I believe in the risen one. I believe I overcome by the power of his love. Amen. God, we thank you so much for the opportunity to gather here today in peace and in warmth and in security. God, thank you for loving us. Thank you for coming and giving your lives as a sacrifice for so many. Lord, may our lives reflect a value that is yours. Lord, that the law of your spirit is written on our heart and that we are a people of justice and of mercy and of humility, of grace and peace and truth. God, may people see the patience and the long-suffering in us and recognize that's God's way of doing things. Lord Jesus, may we be the Bible that somebody reads. May we be the magnet that draws them to you. God, we pray for that kind of gravity, that kind of impact in our lives because we love you. And it's in your name that we pray. Amen. Thank you for gathering as a congregation today. As you go, go be the church.